Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's a great piece in the L.A. Progressive entitled U.S. Imperialism's Proxy War with Russia in Ukraine. It's about restoring U.S. imperial hegemony over Europe, breaking Russia as a global challenger to the U.S. and a dress rehearsal for then going after China. For insight into this... We turn to our first guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy. He's professor in the economics and politics department at St. Mary's College. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. And he's the author of this piece. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, sir, welcome back. My pleasure. You write, this is a proxy war engineered by U.S. neocons and political elites that has its origins going back as far as 1999 when the neocons began to gain greater control over U.S. foreign policy. Jack, I think I know you're correct, but let's also remember that there are a lot of folks on the so-called left who are backing this play as well. As my dear friend and mentor Tom Porter says, there are a lot of folks from the right who are on the left. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, I think a lot of so-called uh, progressives and others uh, don't understand the nature of uh, U.S. imperialism. Uh, they don't understand the history. They're uh, falling into emotional appeals and uh, massive propaganda um, effort going on by the U.S. media here uh, to just look at this event uh, in um, you know a snapshot in time here with with no background, no history. Uh, in my view, uh, you know the great instigator, <laughs> precipitator of this all is U.S. neocons and U.S. foreign policy. The major shift that occurred uh, in late in in Clinton's uh, regime there. Uh, when he was uh, totally weakened uh, because he couldn't keep his zipper zipper closed and almost got impeached, and uh, uh, he just pretty much uh, gave the the right wing uh, and the neocons whatever they wanted, uh, both domestically and in foreign policy. And it was in 1999, in the midst of that, that uh, NATO becomes an offensive uh, organization, starts bombing the hell out of Yugoslavia and Serbia. Uh, at the same time, uh, even more. Important historically, I think NATO starts moving east, uh, contrary to the recommendations of uh, the former uh, advisors. Uh, uh, you know, a much more seasoned, smarter set, George Kennan and U.S. ambassadors who warned against that. But the neocons were now in in power, and we saw the neocons uh, really uh, come to the fore here with George W. Bush, uh, you know, Cheney, and uh, all those uh, people mm -hmm. behind him. Uh, you know, behind the the, the attack on uh, on Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9/11, we know. You know, WMDs and yellow cake and all that nonsense. You know, to justify that attack. A 21st century U.S. imperialism is running amok, uh, and uh, that's the real enemy, I think. And the left and progressives are not paying any attention to that. They have conveniently ignored all that. 
uh, and are just falling into the uh, the propaganda machine here and looking at this thing as a as a morality play in in uh, Ukraine. And by the way, I think uh, the neocons and U.S. imperialists uh, really played uh, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians. Uh, like a violin here, getting them to uh, uh, sort of uh, go off the cliff with some of their claims and demands and so forth, all designed to provoke Russia, uh, taunt Russia, uh, and w- which which it did. Uh, Russia fell into the trap here, took the bait, uh, really didn't have uh, too much of a, of a choice, uh, probably historically, uh, strategically, uh, because NATO was coming. Uh, NATO was coming, and the U.S. Uh, was deeply involved militarily since 2014 and economically, as I point out. Uh, uh, v- Victoria Newland, who was the U.S. Uh, Undersecretary of, of State uh, for that region, um, was made the, the czar economic czar after 2014 of the Ukrainian economy, opened up the floodgates. You know, she's a finance capitalist coming out of Chicago, I think some private equity firm there, opened up the floodgates and in they came, uh, you know, big big business, U.S. businesses of all kinds, uh, uh, penetrating the Ukrainian economy. The U.S. military advisors followed in their, in their wake as they do training uh, and, uh, uh, providing uh, you know arms and so forth for for the Ukrainians and now are deeply involved in this war. The U.S. is deeply involved uh, uh, in a uh, advisor sense uh, in a uh, satellite NAWAX uh, saying where the Russians are and where they're going sense, uh, given a great advantage to um, Ukrainian forces there in in the struggle on the on the ground. Uh, so it's it's the U.S. imperialism here that is the main enemy, I think. And uh, the left and progressives are not paying enough attention to that. You know, they're conveniently falling into this uh, this uh, propaganda media war, which is incredible. Uh, you know, there's all kind of censorship going on in the U.S. It's very hard to find out uh, alternative um, uh, narratives and uh, evidence and facts on this. Uh, we've 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 censored people here. Uh, tremendously, even even worse than the, the censorship that went along with uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, I think. So, you know, I'm trying to bring more balance to this analysis by focusing on it's a three-party war. It's really a proxy war, the kind the U.S. likes to fight. It prefers proxy wars where it gets involved directly. It often loses, you know, like Afghanistan and uh, and Vietnam. Uh, but it loves the proxy war. It, it tends to uh, do better with proxy wars, and that's what this is. And I don't, I don't really think the U.S. wants a quick end to this. You know, uh, there's been some great strategic uh, gains for U.S. imperialism here in Europe. Uh, driving, you know, the objective is to drive Russia out of Western Europe uh, altogether economically. It's not just natural gas. And of course, the U.S. now has a tight grip over NATO. Uh, and there's other objectives, uh, you know, that it's uh, achieving as well, strategic, uh, geopolitical objectives here. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's my analysis of, of this thing. U.S. does not want a quick end to this and probably will do all it can to drag out uh, the negotiations because it wants the sanctions to bite uh, Russia and the sanctions are going to continue for good. You know, they're not going to lift those sanctions because it's all about debilitating the Russian economy, causing um, perhaps a political upheaval and opposition and uh, 
pretty much uh, neutralizing Russia uh, on a uh, world scale here, uh, economically and mil militarily, um, as a prelude, prelude for really going after the big game, which, is, which for U.S. imperialists will be China. That, that will be coming next. Dr. Jack, what's interesting is the U.S.'s plan was we're going to make this a proxy war and get Russia in there and drag this out. My estimation from what I see is I think within four weeks it'll be comprehensively over. Um, but, but regardless of the thing on the, of what's going on on the ground, the real war has turned out to be an economic war of attrition. And as we can see what's happening with the um, gas for rubles situation going on, and now uh, there is, uh, there are some, uh, uh, um, there's some uh, signals coming out of Russia that they're considering not selling any agricultural products to, quote, unfriendly nations. Uh, and top that with what's going on with the new kind of reordering of countries, India, you know, Iran, um, China, selling things in their own uh currencies, it seems to me the U.S. wasn't prepared for this economic proxy war. They thought they were going to do shock and awe. The Russian economy was going to crumble. It didn't, and they're not prepared for a war of attrition. And I think that the U.S. dollar and ultimately the U.S. empire are going to suffer greatly as a result of these miscalculations. And, and recent polling in Russia as of this week has showed that Vladimir Putin's approval rating is up around 86%. Yes. So I don't know uh, what Joe Biden thought was going to happen, but it didn't happen. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, World War III has begun. And it's not going to be like World War One and Two. you know, uh, massive armies fighting each other across the world. Uh, this is an economic war. This is a cyber war. This is a, a, a propaganda war. This is a cultural war. Uh, this is a technological war, uh, and that war is going to continue. Uh, it's not going to abate here, uh, and it's not going to be, except for maybe uh, here and there, a blow-up of proxy conflicts. Um, I think we, we need to understand it in, in that sense. Uh, as far as the, the, the sanctions, uh, you know, they are evoking uh, counter moves by Russia, some of which are successful, some of which not, some of which are in progress. Uh, you know, uh, India's Modi, uh, you know, the prime minister there, uh, clearly doesn't want to uh, jump on board with the sanctions for a number of reasons. He's going to get much cheaper uh, oil from uh, uh, fr from Russia. And, of course, they're heavily involved with buying Russian arms. Uh, and then I just noticed uh, on the news here, uh, Pakistan's uh, prime minister, Imran Khan, uh, is in trouble uh, because he went to Moscow and now it looks like the U.S. is uh, maneuvering with the Pakistan military against the guy. Uh, so this is, a, you know, worldwide it's going on. Uh, the U.S. is going to put pressure on all those other countries that don't uh, fall in line here on, on the sanctions. And there's quite a few of them. It's not just uh, Iran and China, but uh, in other places in, in Latin America and Africa, you know, they don't report it. Uh, but uh, a lot of countries there are saying, no, we're not going to go along with the sanctions. Um, as far as the dollar is concerned, uh, I don't think the dollar is in uh, great uh, danger as the global uh, hegemonic currency, trading and reserve currency. If anything, we're probably going to see a, a rise in the value of the dollar here. It's going to get stronger in the short run. Uh, for the dollar to really be challenged, uh, you're going to have to see another currency or crypto digital currency or something uh, 
that's being increasingly used uh, for trade uh, between countries, other countries, and an alternative uh, international payment system. Uh, those things will will grow. We'll see how fast they grow. As far as the uh, conflict ending uh, here in, in Ukraine in four weeks, uh, uh, well, you know, there may be a stasis of, co- of sorts uh, militarily, but the conflict is, is not going to end in Ukraine uh, because uh, there's intractable posi- uh, positions there. I mean, Russia has already recognized the two uh, provinces. Uh, it's already occupied area along the coasts. Uh I don't think uh, it's it's going to quickly just uh, give up uh, those areas, and uh, I don't think that the uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, Zelensky government with the U.S. behind it, is is going to want to settle anything. It's going to be a a, a a war of words and public opinion and so forth. This thing will, will drag on, even though um, you know maybe the guns go silent here uh, for a period of time. Uh, we're in for an intractable kind of a long-term face-off in Ukraine uh, between the two forces here, which is really Russia uh, versus the United States. That's really what this is about here. And the U.S. is is cleverly using Ukraine as the proxy uh, to uh, try to hammer Russia economically and politically uh, and militarily, too. You know, they'll clearly be, be sending in more arms and advisors and so forth. This thing is not going to uh, uh, abate uh, very, very quickly here. Switching gears, uh, U.S. weekly jobless claims lowest since 1969. Continuing claims shrink. New applications for jobless benefits uh, hit a 50, hit, hit, hit another low. Uh, where are we here uh, with this, Jack? And what does this mean going forward? Well, we got a, uh, you know, the great strike of last uh, fall here when workers refused to go back to work has been replaced by a great migration. <laughs> In other words, workers are moving around. Uh, they're quitting jobs and taking jobs. And every time they take a new job, oh, that's a job creation, you know? It's not really a net job creation. It's really moving around, especially the, the low-paid service workers are saying, hey, you know, the labor market uh, is in our favor here. I'm looking for something better. Uh, and, and they're quitting. You know, the quit rate is very high. Uh, and they're moving around. Uh, but the, the statistics don't pick that up. They pick it up as a real new net job growth. And, you know, we, we, we still haven't recovered all the lost jobs from last time around. But what worries me most about those uh, uh, statistics from the Labor Department are, are the wages, the real wages adjusted for inflation. Uh, workers are going backwards very fast here, uh, particularly those at the median and below. Um, those at the very top, you know, the tech workers, the professionals, you know, they're doing okay. They're using the the, the situation to um, extract higher higher pay and uh, raises and so forth. But those at the middle are, in terms of real terms, you know, real wages with the the ten percent plus inflation, which is going higher. Uh, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, they're going backwards and, uh, you know, they're going to keep quitting. And uh, at some point, you know, they're going to start unionizing like uh, the Amazon workers mm-hmm. uh, today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one mm-hmm. in New York by a significant uh, margin and the vote in Alabama uh, is close and still undetermined uh, simply because of, uh, uh, you know, challenged ballots there. But, uh, you know, we, we could see a resurgence of labor here. 
uh, as uh, workers get desperate, uh, looking for something better. You know, that's what they're all doing. They're looking for something better um, that pays more uh, because the inflation is such that uh, they're going backwards and they know it. Dr. Jack, we see President Biden releasing oil out of strategic reserves. We see a bond yield, I mean, excuse me, the yield curve inversion. Um, and many are saying, you know, there are signs of a recession in the near future. Your thoughts, is there, are we, are we, are we on the edge of a recession? Absolutely. Unequivocally here. Uh, you know, as far as the, the release of, uh, of uh, oil, um, you know, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you know, a million barrels uh, a day, so-called, you know, there's like 650 million barrels. Uh, the U.S. has only released 50 million of that. Uh, what's going to happen is that they're going to release that. <laughs> and guess what? U.S. oil uh, drillers and companies will reduce their output. They'll take the oil from the government, right? And then they won't produce, increase their production uh, domestically. Uh, so, you know, there really won't be any real net increase in production of oil and therefore supply in the U.S. And if you look around the world, uh, OPEC doesn't want to increase uh, significantly. And you're cutting out, uh, what, uh, six, seven million barrels a day or or planning to of Russia output. Uh, Venezuela and Iran aren't going along with it. Uh, where's the U.S. going to get all this extra oil uh, to reduce the supply, I mean, increase the supply and reduce the uh, price of gasoline at the pump, which is six bucks, maybe seven bucks here in California, uh, which is uh, half of all the inflation going on, uh, which is driving workers into a corner in this country. Uh so, uh, you know, it's, it's a big, big force, I think. Um, it's, it's all about trying to look like he's doing something. If he really wanted to do something, you know, he could put an immediate surtax on the oil companies immediately and use the money to redistribute checks back to uh, commuters in this country. If he really wanted to, to do something uh, about the rising oil prices, he could do that, you know, slap a surtax. Uh, on these guys, uh, you know, for all this price gouging that that's going on. But, you know, he's, he's not going to do that. By releasing oil from the reserve, producers cutting back production, then they make greater profit on the oil from the reserve because they don't have production cost. Right. Or, or they could, uh, um, Instead of see the way it works is that the government says, okay, we got this strategic reserve. We're going to auction it, auction it off to the oil companies, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So the oil companies, which have a glut of oil now, are not going to pay a lot for it. Right. They're going to pay under market rates, and uh, they're going to make a profit killing uh, by grabbing this uh, this oil and and reduce their own uh, output. Or they could do what's called swaps. In other words, just swap oil uh, from the strategic observe, but then they got to return it uh, and have to pay interest. So they're not going to swap it. They're going to do an auction, and the oil companies are, are going to get a, a below market price from the government. It's a subsidy. It's a subsidy. That's all it is. It's a big game. It's all a PR for the public to think that, you know, Biden is doing something. You know, if he wanted to do something, you know, uh, not only, you know, slap the, the, the surtax on the oil, oil companies, you know, but, but put some temporary price controls mm -hmm. on the whole mm -hmm. thing, you know. Uh, he could do that, but he's not going to do that either. So it's, so it's a big farce, in my opinion.
Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Anytime. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece, The Battle for Mariupol is Coming to an End, and Civilian Testimonies on the Crimes of Azov are Multiplying. As the battle for Mariupol draws to a close, and the Russian army and the DPR... The Donetsk People's Republic, People's Militia, have now taken control of most of the city. Civilians are evacuating en masse, and stories of the horrors committed by the fighters of the Azov Regiment are multiplying. What does this say about the narratives being constructed? And what interests are the U.S. really protecting? For insight into this and other issues, let's turn to our next guest. He's a published book author, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He has more than 20 years of journalistic experience, former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, as well as a former radio and TV producer for Chicago's public media's This American Life, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Great to be here, Wilmer. Thank you. In our first segment, we spoke with political economist Dr. Jack Rasmussen. He said that this is a proxy war engineered by U.S. neocons and political elites that has its origins going back as far as 1999 when the neocons began to gain greater control over U.S. foreign policy. To that, I said, Jack, you are correct, but let's also remember that there are a lot of folks on the so-called left who are backing this play as well. As Tom Porter said, there are a lot of folks from the right who are really on the, who are on the left. <laughs> Your thoughts, John Jeter, particularly about this narrative that the U.S. is trying to construct? Yeah, it's uh, well, you know, I have to say it's it's successful so far. Although I can't imagine that it is sustainable. At some point, we're going to have to pay homage to reality. Uh, I was. Uh, speaking to an academic yesterday, a professor of uh, African-American history, and I was surprised, really shocked uh, to hear him sort of parroting these um, uh, mainstream media narratives about Putin and Russia and the conflict in Ukraine. And I understood that, you know, even with his uh, access to information and resources, uh, the media really kind of has the truth on lockdown at this point uh, in terms of the uh, conflict in Ukraine. And um, it's it's really very dangerous because uh, what's actually happening, at least as far as I can ascertain from some independent sources, and what we are reporting are uh, not just different, but antithetical. And I think that uh, it's going to raise some very serious questions about uh, the U.S. government, about our media, and about our ability to uh, 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 sort of come up with solutions to get ourselves as a country out of our uh, very sticky predicament. Uh, 
You know, something I'd like to ask you about, because I frequently go to, you know, African news and Middle Eastern and, and South American, and I find that um, the country, the browner and blacker parts of the world, <laughs> none of the countries have gone along with the sanctions. None of the countries really that I can find are siding with the U.S. empire. And I mean, I, maybe it's because they've suffered oppression at the hands of the U.S. empire, amongst many things. But your thoughts on this reality that we're seeing, you know, I, I got to say this. There's like a racial line here where the U.S. and Canada and Australia and the white Western countries are all saying Russia's evil. And when I look at all the brown and the yellow countries of the world, eh, they seem to be on the other side of the line. I mean, do you feel that that's accurate? Oh, no doubt. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, there's there's a, I mean, there's a very real sort of dialectical quality to this, right? And, and there and there has been, as far as I've been aware, for the last 20 years. I remember being in um, uh, uh, Argentina, uh, which is a mostly white country, but still they have a very different history, um, and that, than does the United States as sort of a country that has been, you know, semi-colonized or was semi-colonized by the United States, uh, by Spain. Uh, and then by uh, neoliberalism in the early 1990s. And I remember when uh, Colin Powell, the now late Colin Powell, gave his speech to the U United Nations General Assembly, uh, arguing for the United States to go into war to uh, strip Iraq of these mythical weapons of mass destruction. I remember talking to my editors and my colleagues back in Washington at the Washington Post, and then talking to just average Argentines. And I mean, their reactions to the speech were completely different, right? Because the Argentines had a very different understanding of the world, of the United States, of of of, of Iraq, and about uh, 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 neocolonialism, right? And so, yeah, there's definitely there's a racial quality to it, there's a geographic quality to it, and it's really sort of it really speaks to the power dynamic in the world, right? Uh, which wh who has power and who doesn't, and I think I think what we're seeing is uh, a transfer of that power. It's gradual. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're seeing I think uh, because I, I believe we're going to see a lot of these countries, these darker countries of the world, but also the countries that have suffered under the yoke of United States oppression, United States colonialism. I think we're going to see those countries begin to gravitate because they see what's happening. And so I think they're going to gravitate more and more toward this China-Russia axis, right? And that's what, and Putin has been developing this, you know, I, you know, I don't speak Russian, I don't know Vladimir Putin, but I've been seeing this for at least the last decade since the invasion of, NATO's invasion of Libya. And I, uh, I swear, uh, Putin, who, if you think about it, would know what an empire collapsing looks like better than anybody in the world, right? Uh, he's been seeing this and preparing for this for 10 years, for at least a decade, and he's putting that into action. And so uh, we're seeing this very real shift that I think, you know, you talk about China and India, which represents about 40 percent of the world's population. They understand what's going on. They're siding uh, to varying degrees with Russia uh, in this conflict. And we're seeing sort of this uh, information desert that is the United States really take hold and really I think it's going to have a paralyzing effect and then I'm afraid probably a, a chaotic effect uh, on our population. I think also contributing to this is the fact that the particularly countries on the continent of Africa 
understand the difference between imperialism and anti-imperialism. And Russia was not involved in in not only imperialism, but uh, colonialism was not involved in colonizing the continent. And in fact, many countries drew their strength or direct support uh, for their anti-colonial resistance from Russia after the Russian Revolution in 1919. So you can look at Cuba, you can look at Angola, you can look at a number of countries on the continent who drew either ideological strength or direct support from Russia as they fought colonialism. Um, And to that point, that takes us to another piece in uh, Orinoco Tribune, West well aware of racism, neo-Nazism, and atrocities in Ukraine, but keeps it on hush-hush. And this is this article is, is what prompted me to write in the open, what interests is the United States or are the United States serving? John Jeter. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. I, you know, this is a proxy war. It is the United States. You know, as the Africans uh, say, they like to say, this, these, this is the last kick. The, these are the last kicks of a dying mule, right? Uh, it's an act of desperation to encircle uh, Russia and then China, right, to isolate that part of the world. And it's been it's been ongoing, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think for the last 20 years, it's ratcheted up. Uh, but it's, it's having just the opposite effect. Uh, there was just, uh, 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 I think, a meeting. Uh, I'm not sure where it was, but it was at the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and they had all these leaders. And you look at it and it's this it's this sort of, <laughs> you know, I, I hate the phrase of a Benettonian sort of picture, but it is. And it's like, oh, man, that is powerful. You got the South African ambassador and the foreign minister, I think, from uh, uh, Russia and, you know, these sort of these 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 different complexions in this picture. And you realize, oh, my God, this is uh, this is very real. This is happening. This is going down. Right. Uh, and, and I just don't think that. Um, I don't think that we're up to the task at this moment, right? We have been sort of so dumbed down, so isolated. Uh, we're we're overworked, underpaid, and we're all sort of, uh, you know, we're sick, you know, not just with COVID, but with all sorts of um, uh, healthcare issues and mental issues as well. I would argue, um, uh, Will Smith, uh, that that. <laughs> Um, that 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 are that are the product of a for of a completely privatized economy, right? Uh, and, and so we've just got these contradictions popping up all over, and we just don't we don't even recognize them. And of course, you know, as James Baldwin would say, you know, not every problem that's faced uh, can be dealt with, but certainly to deal with the problem, you must face it. And we're nowhere near the point where we're facing our problems right now. Uh, the rest of the world, the rest of the world is doing that. Uh, very well, I would argue. They're actually starting to come to grips with uh, the problems caused by a unipolar world, which is what we've seen for the last 30 years. And now I think we're seeing the beginning of the end. I think here's an indication of a problem. And that is, you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, Nazis in in, in, uh, in Ukraine. This is from the United States government Peace Corps website. And it says, possible considerations for African-Americans or black volunteers. And it says, uh, volunteer uh, people of color may face challenges living in Ukraine as a Peace Corps volunteer. Now, this is off of their website. It is not uncommon for Ukrainians to refer to African-Americans as 
inward. Volunteers of color may be called a monkey or may see children's games with blackface. Being aware, and it goes, and I'm thinking, now they're asking me to pay higher gas prices. They're asking me to make, um, uh, 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 you know, considerations in my life to stand up for the Ukrainians. And if I go up there, they're going to call me a monkey in the N-word. I, and and might I add, while we're literally whipping Haitian uh, uh, potential um, uh, people who have a legitimate right, thanks to U.S. empire, to claim refugee status at the border and sending them right back, Joe Biden says, ah, we're going to take 100,000 Ukrainians, but watch it, you know, they might call you a monkey or the N-word. And if I may quote Tom Porter one more time, they rather eat their racism than sit down and have a fine <laughs> meal. No, I agree completely. That's, these are the contradictions that I'm talking about that I think are, they're just too much. We can't keep that genie in the bottle much longer, right? We're going to, you know, people are going to start asking questions about, uh, and they're already asking questions, right, about uh, uh, why exactly are we paying higher gas prices? I mean, you know, the, 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 the United States media reports that, you know, Putin is in trouble and he's, you know, he's asking China for weapons, for help with weapons, and, you know, he's losing, but he's not. None of that is happening. They have... They have won this war militarily, uh, and, and it's all over but the shout, as we used to say, right, uh, in the South. Uh, and, and so questions are going to emerge because what you're going to see is a decline, a deepening decline of the standard of living in the United States as inflation begins to skyrocket, uh, uh, people's standard of living, living declines, and you're going to see more and more questions. And I think you know some of it is, you know, I find this fascinating, really, in a lot of ways, right? Like, um, I, now I don't know exactly what happened with uh, uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, and his Ukrainian and Chinese business deals. But I know that uh, there should have been some reporting on it <laughs> during the campaign when it was first uh, mm-hmm. when it first surfaced, right? And that is coming out now. And I don't. I, I suspect that that is because uh, Wall Streeters who are dissatisfied with uh, Biden's handling of this of this conflict in Ukraine, I suspect they're the ones who've given the green light to the New York Times and these other news agencies to now report on what should have been reported on two years ago. But this raises questions, right? Like, why, why are we just hearing about this now? I mean, uh, you know, Hunter Biden, a, uh, 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 a known crackhead, I don't actually say that with any judgment, that's what he was, right? He was a crackhead, right? And still might be. These, yeah, very well, for, for all I know, right? And, and, and how, do, how does he have these, uh, how does he have these high-paying jobs on Ukrainian gas and energy concerns, and he has no history? I mean, like, it, they take us for stupid, or maybe they just hope that we're stupid, right? But I just think these contradictions are too much. And, and, and like you said, Garland, you know, the the when the first Ukrainian immigrants start to disembark here, right? Like I'm just waiting for the memes and for the the uh, YouTube videos uh, that has side by side these uh, Ukrainian white immigrants arriving to this sort of you know, fanfare and feated by uh, whites in the United States, and then those border agents on horseback whipping those Haitian Im- immigrants. I-, I mean, the the you talk about bad optics, man. This is this is bad optics all over the place. We've got about three minutes left, and, and you mentioned the Wall Wall Streeters and financiers giving the green light to the New York Times and other papers. What I think your point highlights is. 
there are a number, I'll say at least three factions within the United States government. You've got the State Department, you've got uh, Secretary of State Blinken, and you've got Victoria Nuland and that whole crew that want to go to war. You have the Pentagon that seems to be in opposition to the war, hence the stories that were released through Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report last week that the stories of uh, Russian chemical uh, attacks were false and the other story that came out of um, Newsweek, now I'm drawing a blank on what that's, but it contradicted, it contradicted the U.S. narrative uh, about the invasion of, uh, about the uh, intervention in Ukraine. So that was showing the Pentagon not being on board with the U.S. narrative. And now you've got these Hunter Biden stories that are surfacing now. And to your point, somebody's given the green light here and it must be the financiers. So what a lot of people haven't been really been able to put the, put the pieces together around is the country isn't all in on this. And, it's only looking at you only you, you need to ask yourself who's controlling the narrative. We got about two minutes. Yeah, no, I I think that, you know, as as usual, I think, you know, the the question should always be who benefits, right? Who benefits from this these false narratives, these demonstrably false narratives, this idea of Putin being a madman, uh uh, you know, the idea that that there are no or very few Nazis within the Ukrainian army and government. I mean, who benefits from that? Why, why is that narrative being spun? And I think that that's what helps us untangle because this is very fluid, right? I don't think they know uh, what they're going to do, how they're going to address uh uh, this very sort of porous narrative that they've assembled is they're kind of building the plane while they fly. I I would not be surprised to see some sort of attempt to ease Joe Biden. I I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just saying I would not be shocked to see uh, some attempt to ease Joe Biden out of the White House because of some cognitive uh, 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 diminution uh, and ease Hillary Clinton on at the top of the ticket. I wouldn't be shocked at all. I don't think it would work if they did try that, right? I think Hillary Clinton would get her hat handed to her once again, which would really be humiliating. And, and, and in fact, now that I think about that, now that I say that out loud, <laughs> that might be something to cheer for. But um, I, I just think this is a very fluid situation. They, they you know, we, we give them too much credit, right? We give our rulers too much credit. They don't know what they're doing. They're trying to keep this genie in the bottle. Um, and, you know, I, at some point we need to intervene and say, wait a minute. What's going on here? What what's the where are the goalposts and how do we get there? And uh, the United States is just the population is so passive, right? We're so passive. We just let things unfold, and that's not going to end well from us. I, I hope that we've radicalized so many of our most we've marginalized so many of our most radical voices. We just don't have anyone in our ears saying, "Okay, this is what you need to do." And as we get out. Uh, I think a big part of this is the fact that so many of these narratives are built on lies that and, and I use Venezuela as an example. You know, Nicolas Maduro isn't the real president of, of, of Venezuela. And now the United States goes goes hat in hand begging for oil and they're able to make that shift because it was a lie from the very beginning. John Jeter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Great. Thanks a lot, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. This past Monday, President Biden released his 2023 budget proposal. Political reports that the budget request reflects an administration grappling with multiple obstacles. It can't yet move past the pandemic, didn't get to enact its huge social spending package, and has added Russia's military intervention in Ukraine to its national security palette. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor and being a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, Colin, welcome back. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. So the White House asked Congress for $813 billion for national defense, including $773 billion for the Pentagon, or $30 billion more than was approved by Congress for this year. And the administration is focusing on China as the pacing challenge for the Pentagon, its budget documents have said. You know, we keep hearing that we can't afford social programs, but we can always find plenty of money for war. And the funny thing is, that most of these wars and conflicts are of our making, Colin Campbell. Yeah, they are. And we're looking forward to the election in November, where you have the administration is looking at the budget and trying to make sure that different parties are feeling satisfied with the attention that they're getting and the money that they're getting, right? So when you look at just the, the prospect of Democrats doing well, in the fall and coming out of a pandemic, knowing that we have uh, supply chain issues, knowing that we're um, giving money to a country that's embroiled in war right now, still trying to get people back to work, even though some of the numbers have been somewhat favorable in, in recent weeks. We still know that Democrats and, and the Biden administration in particular is facing an uphill battle, um, trying to win over approval ratings in the minds of the public. And when we're looking at some of the strategic and foreign policy endeavors that the U.S. has been embroiled in, mainly the communication with Russia and the relationship with Russia and with China, we're seeing that there's lots of money being funneled into these areas where it seems like it's ignoring some of the greater issues that Americans are finding more important, mainly the economy. We heard the president talking about uh, releasing oil reserves as a slight uh, type of, of amelioration to that issue. But when you look at the attention and the money going into a lot of the other foreign policy issues, it does look like there's a severe disparity there. At the same time, when it comes to the um, dealing with Russia and the arms race that um, has been part of the dialectic between the U.S. and Russia or the Soviet, you know, formerly the Soviet Union for decades. We can understand why President Biden tends to lean in that direction. We have to remember this guy has been dealing with um, Soviet Union at that time, later Russia, but when he started the Soviet Union for decades and looking at an arms race, trying to uh, build his foreign policy chops on dealing with the Soviet Union. So to, to see all of this money being put into Ukraine and to stave off Chinese interests at the same time, it's not really a surprise. 
as as those militaries are are um, trying to build up their um, influence in the region. We're looking at China, looking at Russia. A lot of people are looking to President Biden to keep the U.S.'s status as a military power globally, even if his predecessor wanted to shrink that quite a bit. And even if he has said that he doesn't want to over-militarize the world with the, in, um, under U.S. influence, there's still that pressure to keep the U.S.'s status as a superpower when it comes to military might. Here's the thing I think that we got to think about. <clears throat> pressure from whom? Because the the fact of the matter is that when it comes down to winning and losing, it's always the economy. If you want to win, if gas prices are low, if the economy is doing good, the Democrats are going to do pretty well. Uh, Regardless of what's going on overseas, you know, there's a pressure from inside the beltway. And I think to me, and I want to ask you about this, when I look at a budget that leans towards there's a whole lot of money, I'll put it like this, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin are going to be happy. But Ray and, 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 and Martin, who are working down at the mill ain't going to be happy. And they're the ones that votes. It, it, it makes me feel cynical to say they don't really care if they're going to win or not because the people who have the power always win. If the Democrats are in power, if the Republicans are in power, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing, uh, 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 Goldman Sachs, they're always going to get theirs. So it seems to me it's gotten to a point where – the Democrats, I, I'm looking at this, I'm saying they don't care if they win, they're going to win, because if they had any care about winning, the budget wouldn't be looking this far disconnected from Main Street. Your thoughts? Is my cynicism warranted? No, your, your cynicism is definitely warranted. I mean, it's past this prologue. This is more of a handout to some of the major corporations that have been winning and receiving the benefit of these budget increases over the past several years, and this is no different. Um, This increases militarism, this increases um, the pockets and expands the pockets of of those in the C-suite of these corporations. When you look at just where the money is being allocated, uh, we can even look at some of the uh, the salary increases for federal employees, it's a drop in the bucket by comparison. There's always a tendency to lean towards this type of neoliberal uh, model of financial empowerment in areas where a lot of Americans would rather see it swing the other way. And of course, there that cynicism has not only been, not only is it warranted, but it's been substantiated over the past several years, regardless of who's in office. And I think that Americans are growing weary of it, but feel powerless in a way to really change it in any way, because it doesn't seem to matter what party is in office. Now, one may embolden Um, the neoliberal, neoconservative model more than another. However, the result is the same. Those on Main Street are always going to feel slighted. They're always going to receive the short end of the stick over major corporations because the major corporations, those who are leading them, those in the C-suite, they, their pockets are getting fatter, and that's how they like it. You know, that's why um, there are all these conversations about lobbying or, um, or reform when it comes to, uh, when it comes to um, appealing to politicians because of this reason. There just seems to be more and more money being allocated to areas that really aren't specifically in the interests of the average American. 
The budget will make new investments in the nation's nuclear triad in building a a new long-range stealth bomber, new nuclear-powered submarines. It'll increase investments in hypersonic weapons development, build up the defense industrial base, and upgrade to the Navy's public and private shipyards. To Garland's point, if the Democrats were really concerned about staying in power, there'd be student loan debt deferment, if not elimination. We would be talking about a $20 minimum wage or a living wage. We'd be talking about health care and child care. We'd be talking about the real kitchen table issues that matter to to Martin and who'd you say? Martin? Uh, uh, instead of uh, Ray and Martin, Ray, instead Ray of and Martin. And, and Lockheed exactly. Martin. Or T-Bone, Lil' Man, and Ray Ray. There we go. And also what is incredibly vacuous here is the Congressional Black Caucus, and they as a body are not challenging this budget. Yeah, I, I think that they have been, they've received um, some very just criticism for their attention as well. They seem to go along to get along in many ways. And the issues that, that, they, are, that they fight over, um, they don't seem to have that many victories. Now, one of the things that they'll point to recently is the lynching bill. That has been passed. And so they'll take these small victories. But over the long term, when it comes to these, these much larger investments, they don't seem to have the type of defense or definitely not the vociferous nature that they have with other types of policy when it comes to speaking out against this disparate uh, funding or disparate allocation of funds or even attention to where the funding is going. It seems to me that there, when it comes to political power from coming from Main Street, there seems to be just an, uh, an uneven power type of sharing. And I'm not sure what the answer is there. When you have the, the population is saying one thing, that we're suffering, that we, are, we need uh, more money and more attention to our daily problems and obstacles. It just seems that there's a deaf ear in Washington because the money interests coming from larger corporations speaks louder. Those, their money is going into, into coffers as well, becomes more influential, and the voices of Main Street, no matter how big they are, no matter how, you know, with a growing population, the growing number of, of people being affected by a disparate wealth gap, their voices just don't seem to be loud enough to overtake corporate interests. Two things I would just say, too, and on the, uh, the, um, the lynching bill, I think it's an illusion of a victory for this reason. Ain't nobody getting lynched. So, I mean, I understand symbolically speaking, hooray, we passed the lynching bill 60 years after the last person was lynched, what was actually on the Lower Eastern Shore of Maryland, believe it or not, uh, officially well known. But the bottom line is, and so I even think that when the congressional black— Actually, the last guy lynched was in Texas. Texas? Uh, James Byrd, the guy that was dragged behind the uh, truck. Well, yeah, I didn't count that, but right. yeah, exactly. Because well, that's considered lynching. Okay. Right. So my point is that for the even the black, Congressional Black Caucus, when you got like— 
you know, a large, a huge, a very large number of black people in America who were have been left behind for the last four, you know, three or four centuries economically and never really got the opportunity to, ca- uh, to get caught up. And then they pass a symbolic lynching bill. And then they say to the people who have never really gotten a fair shot, hey, guess what? You just won. Man, they can't eat that. They can't pay their rent. Not that I'm opposed to it, but in the real world, it's just, to me— Plain old fashioned symbolism. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not impressed by that kind of stuff. Am I wrong? And, and, I'll ask well, you. Well, let me let me let me just quickly say, I understand the anti. To your point, I understand the anti lynching bill. When I walk out of my house in the morning, or I'm not that concerned about being lynched. I'm more concerned about police having qualified immunity. That's what I'm more concerned about because that's impacting us day to day. So just to— The other—one last thing, and I'll throw this in because I think it's important. It's in that article. One of the things that hasn't been acted on in this budget is marijuana legalization and in particular that people who are in jail— uh, overwhelmingly people of color, f- get pardoned, get let out, and things of that nature. So if I had to choose between an anti-lynching bill and getting brothers out of jail for weed, I would choose the latter, and that ain't happening. Colin. The lynching of Michael Donald in Mobile, Alabama, March 21st, 1981, was one of the last reported lynchings in the United States. Go ahead, Colin. Dr. Dr. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, and— uh, I think that when it comes to these these small uh, victories, they of course pale in comparison to the larger picture of what uh, of what is really needed and what America needs. And you did bring up people of color, what people of color need. I think that's why the CBC has been criticized as very ineffective in recent years. Um, there have been people calling for a reform in the way that it's run, uh, different leadership. Um, so on and so forth. So it definitely the criticism of CBC is warranted. I do feel that it's a microcosm of what's happening in Washington now, where, again, you have the, the needs, the, the severe needs of many people are just being overlooked because of bigger money interests. Uh, we've we've heard this conversation so many times, especially when it comes to elections. So we see the very progressive part of the Democratic wing trying to make strides in um, trying to make strides in its influence in the party and trying to make it to the big stage. But time and time again, it's always uh, stifled. Um, there's a certain type of moderate tone, I think, that Democrats always want to take to try to appeal to the other side, even if the other side isn't willing to broker um, in, in, um, honest, um, in honest overtures with them. But there just seems to be this constant ebb and flow of, well, these are the needs of the American people. Yes, we're giving it attention during this political election year, but we can't really go too bold because then the other side will get elected. So we're going to scale many things back. And then as they start to scale things back, they just get more and more buried under the rug. And of course, as we know, when it comes to people of color and issues dealing with minority communities, they they face those dynamics more adversely than than the mainstream, than many people um, in the predominantly white culture. And so um, this is not very surprising. I, you know, the CBC can 
bark as much as it can, but it really does not have as much sway as it would like to have in order to make really sub- substantive change. Switching gears, Biden, this uh, piece out of uh, Consortium News, Joe Loria, uh, Biden confirms why the U.S. needed this war. And the point that Joe Loria makes is uh, Biden's uh, statement, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, that it's really all about regime change in Russia. When we look at the reality, the dynamics of the U.S. policy towards Ukraine and Russia's intervention there, Biden says that Putin's got to go. Well, polling shows that his approval rating is at 86 percent. Joe Biden is trying to uh, squeeze Russia's economy by sanctioning the sale of Russian oil. The ruble is on the rise. He's trying to hold together a, a coalition of EU countries to not uh, support or buy uh, Russian oil. And you've got countries that are saying very clear, clearly, no, that makes no sense for us. Uh, we're not going to buy more expensive U.S. oil uh, or U.S. natural gas when we can buy cheaper natural gas from from Russia. Uh, it doesn't seem to me as though this policy was well thought through. Colin Campbell. I know President Biden is looking at this and looking at the worst approval ratings that he's had uh, since being in office, just under 40 percent. So it does. It's the irony is there is that he is maligning uh, Putin. Uh, at the same time, a lot of Americans are giving him the dagger eyes as well as they suffer economically. And I think that the president is trying to make this longer range calculation. If we look at the way that he is opening up reserves, that'll go for the next six months. If you do the calculations, uh, we're in April now, plus six, that takes us into October, just before November, right? And so we have to look at the, the strategy behind that. And if it'll even work, because the uh, the gas prices will decrease a little bit um, over the next couple of weeks, but it'll take a while if, if there's going to be any profound effect for people at the pump. And in the meantime, Democrats are going to be looking for ways to improve their approval numbers over the next several months leading up into November, which is how we start out this conversation. Democrats looking at November. How are they going to resonate with the American people when things are still pretty bad for a lot right now? Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, man, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. I look forward to returning. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a great piece in Antiwar.com entitled, Biden Slips, Calls Openly for Removal of Putin. Feeling his oats after effusive adulation from leaders of NATO and Japan at the G7 summit, Biden gave us the mother of all faux pas, 
this afternoon in Poland when it was written. No, sadly, it was not some kind of Polish joke. Echoing imperious King Henry II of England, Biden uttered the equivalent of, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest or troublesome president? The priest, of course, was Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury. The president is Vladimir Putin, who had already warned a complete break in U.S.-Russia relations. For insight into this, we turn to our next guests. It's Friday, so that means it's panel time. So let's turn to our first panel. We're joined by a former Central Intelligence Agency officer who was a CIA analyst from 1963 to 1990 and in the 80s chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the president's daily brief. In 2003, he co-founded Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and he's the author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. We're also joined by a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Ray, you wrote, referring in all but name to President Putin, Biden said this man cannot remain in power. Remember, that should not be necessary. President, pre, uh, prudent presidents have been reluctant to say that of the leader of other countries, sometimes even when the two are at war. Ray, how reckless, how irresponsible, how dangerous was that ridiculous utterance? Well, I think we have to uh, uh, look at it from the perspective of Vladimir Putin. Uh, he's looking at a an aging U.S. president who doesn't seem fully in control of his emotions. Uh, I'll point out something that uh, no one else has uh, mentioned that I know of. But the day before, uh, Biden uh, let loose with that comment that Putin had to be removed, should be removed. Uh, that was the day that Russian media made a big thing of the documents on Hunter Biden, Joe's son, on his laptop, including that Hunter Biden was partially responsible for funding, securing funds for these biological, quote, research, end quote, centers uh, dotted around the uh, Ukrainian landscape. Uh, things are getting hot and heavy now. Joe knows that he's under great stress politically. Even the Washington Post is telling the truth on that one specific mm -hmm. issue now. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, although I run the risk of uh, seeming to argue post hoc ergo propter hoc, namely, since Joe said it the day after uh, this happened, uh, that was he did it because of that. I think it contributed to his instability here. And I don't have to tell people how dangerous this is when uh, when Biden and his administration are going to have to, in the final analysis, negotiate some sort of end to this terrible stuff that's going on in Ukraine. Now, I use post hoc ergo proctor hoc because my friend Scott Ritter is very much <laughs> used now to use the actus reus and uh, mens rea and so forth. All I can say is there are a lot of mens rea out there, and I look forward to him talking about his article. And, and but Scott, before we get to that, 
and and let me stress, most of the audience knows this, but I think it's very, very important of, of all the credentials that both of you bring to the conversation. I think, Ray, you chaired the Russia desk for the CIA for a number of years. And Scott, you, as I said in the open, you served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty. So, you both of you guys have a really clear understanding of of Russia, the people, uh, the the ideologies, the the culture, and so Scott, your thoughts on what I uh, describe as just a totally reckless, freckless, irresponsible utterance by an American president. President. Well. Um... <clears throat> Biden was simply giving voice to a policy that has been de facto since 2009, when the Obama administration came in. Uh, the Great Reset was was regime change by any other means. Uh, when when we throw the entire weight of America behind Dmitry Medvedev uh, for the sole purpose of keeping Vladimir Putin from returning to the to the Kremlin, uh, that's regime change. And uh, when Biden traveled to uh, Moscow in March of 2011 on the eve of the uh, Russian parliamentary uh, uh, elections in which you know, uh, Putin's party uh, was looking to gain the majority, therefore paving the way for Putin to run for president in March of 2012. Um, Biden met with political opposition leaders and said, I don't think Putin should, should run for president again. His time is up. He needs to step aside. That's direct interference, followed by Hillary Clinton's um, utterances in December, um, <clears throat> calling the Russian election a, a fraud. And ever since then, we've been engaged in policies designed to undermine Russian confidence in Vladimir Putin uh, for the purpose of having the Russian people solve our regime change problem by throwing him out. So all Biden did is give voice to it. It was uh, perhaps bad timing, but there was nothing dishonest about it. It was actually refresh, refreshingly honest for a moment. And then until, of course, he came back and lied and said, <clears throat> that is not the policy of the United States. It is, in fact, the stated policy of the United States to facilitate the democratization of Russian society for the sole purpose of removing an autocratic leader from power. What the heck do you think that the, the Summit for Democracy was about? It wasn't about uh, embracing Vladimir Putin. It was about removing Vladimir Putin and the likes of Vladimir Putin. So it was an honest statement made at um, the wrong time, because at the moment he made that statement, uh, Biden was also uh, in the process of publishing the 2022 Nuclear Posture Review, where he was reneging on a campaign promise <coughs> to do away with uh, America's uh, first strike policy. Uh, he had promised that he would institute a no first strike policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. Instead, he's backed away from that at a time when NATO is discussing nuclear war. Uh, Biden embraces first strike policy. At the same time, he's enunciating uh, regime change as the de facto policy of the United States and Russia. At the same time, we're finalizing the deployment of the Dark Eagle um, intermediate-range missile system, hypersonic missile system, in Europe later this year that gives America the ability to take out a target in the Kremlin five to seven minutes from launch. 
So um, Biden's honest statement actually uh, has the potential of creating a crisis of confidence in the, um, the the logic of American national security policy, so much so that a Russian leader would not be wrong in fearing a preemptive nuclear strike by the United States designed to decapitate Kremlin leadership. Um, Ray, I know you want to comment on this, but I want to add one other thing to that to get you to comment on. With that comment, with some other bumbles, you know, that uh, Joe Biden made in Poland, you know, saying that, you know, the the the, the uh, uh, U.S. soldiers may soon be in Ukraine. I mean, it seemed kind of disastrous, like kind of, you know, wandering around. I don't think he did well. How do you think these things affected the EU leaders? The EU leaders? Well, uh, you know, I'm reminded of that cartoon about two lemmings. They're right on the edge of the cliff, right? And one says, you really think we have to do this? And the other says, of course, to do anything other than jump off the cliff would dishonor the record of all the lemmings that have gone before us. <laughs> all those lemmings in Europe that are following Biden have uh, uh, just, you know, like lemmings, they, uh, they really need to know that their interests can be protected by pursuing their own interests, by pursuing their own national policies. Um, Biden, uh, my, my concern is much more with what Putin thinks about Biden's uh, capabilities here. Biden has, I suppose, to his credit, uh, said, uh, you know, we don't want to get into a nuclear war with, with Russia. And he's denied uh, various people uh, who have been appealing for a, uh, um, you know, a fly, no-fly zone and so forth. But, you know, how, how long can he stand up to this? Uh, if I were Vladimir Putin, I would worry about that. I agree with what uh, Scott said 100% with respect to U.S. policy trying to dethrone or get rid of Putin. And I would say that we have been remarkably successful because the latest polls show that Putin has only 83% <laughs> popular support. That's supposed to be an April Fool's joke. But what I'm trying to say here. Is that no? Actually, that happens to be true, right? Eighty-three percent. Right. I thought I thought it was eighty-six, but go ahead. <laughs> well, it depends on which poll you read. But this was the Levada poll, which is the most ind independent. Okay. So anyway, these geniuses that are running our policy are are April fools if they think that this is going to help uh, with their with their um, their con confrontation of Russia. And as I always try to stress, uh, lurking in the background and now pretty much in the foreground is the fact that China is in behind Russia 100 percent. And that was shown in vivid detail on Wednesday when Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, met with Wang, uh, the, head, the foreign minister of, of China. Uh, they emphasized how close their strategic partnership is. They made fun of Biden by saying, you know, some people think and some people think that uh, they can squeeze us and cause a dilemma as to whether we need to distance ourselves from Moscow over Ukraine or else face condemnation. Well, <laughs> we've never been we've never been closer. Now, that's big. And for the for the uh, New York Times today uh, to start out. Um, by saying, 
because it's been totally isolated, uh, Putin is now going to. Well, you know, <laughs> oh my God, didn't they read the joint statement or the statement that the Chinese made after they met with Lavrov on Wednesday? He met with the Indians yesterday. I mean, you know, Moscow is anything but totally isolated. And if the New York Times doesn't wake up to that, then then they just fall into where these geniuses that work for the State Department fall in, which is really, really naive at, at best and very mischievous at worst. And, and Scott, we're going to we're going to get to your piece in just a second. But but Ray's comment, particularly about the lemmings, made me think about this and, and want you to get your take on this. Austria and Hungary say no substitute to Russian gas as Germany's BASF warns of worse crisis since World War II. Uh, President Putin signed a decree yesterday ordering countries which have slapped sanctions on Russia to pay for natural gas in rubles starting today. Uh, The ultimatum split Europe with the EU's G7 members publicly vowing not to pay, while privately some, including Germany, have inquired about how much the payment system or how would how such the payment system would operate. But you've got Austria and, and Hungary, uh, those two lemmings standing on the cliff talking to each other. Doesn't look like they're going to jump. No, I mean, again, we come back to Biden's four day trip. <clears throat> it's going to go down in history as one of the prime examples of just how weak and pathetic the United States is. You know, he's selling it as the greatest example of American leadership um, and proof positive that NATO has never been more united. Really? Then why do you have two NATO members? Um, I don't know Well, Austria isn't a NATO member, but why do you have one NATO member uh, saying, we ain't playing, uh, we're not doing this game, Turkey's not sanctioning, uh, uh, Bulgaria's uh, not ready to play ball, um, Europe is splitting apart, Germany is secretly uh, panicked because the, 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 the head uh, was BASF, he's 100% correct. Um, if Germany goes down the route of trying to uh, stand tall against Russia, it's not that their economy will be damaged. Their economy will be permanently disabled. There will be no coming back from this. Because once you start shutting down industries for the length of time that they're going to be shut down, <coughs> uh, you, you, you just don't flip a switch off and on. It's over. For Germany, uh, the day that you know the day of Germans' economic dominance of Europe is finished, and that's a statement of reality. If the Germans don't play ball, which means they're going to have to break ranks, France is going to have to break ranks. Everybody's going to have to break ranks. Poland thinks it can do what? Uh, pressure Germany and France to pay in rubles and then sell gas to Poland, uh, you know, for. Uh, for, for, for euros so Poland can bypass Russia. Russia's not going to let that happen. So, you know, we, we are looking at um, a divided Europe, a Europe that, and, and here's the bigger picture, too. I mean, you know, Biden can get up there and scream about the sanctity of the Article 5. It is sacred. It is sacred. It's nothing. Read the article. Right. It's a nothing burger. It doesn't say we all for one and one for all. It says you attack one, the others can consider coming to your help. Consider. And it, the help doesn't have to be military in nature. So the bottom line is it's an opt-in policy. And when you have a NATO alliance this divided, I can guarantee you that if Poland provoked a confrontation with Russia and Russia came at Poland, 
60% of NATO would not participate in that conflict. That's an absolute statement of fact, including perhaps the United States, which realizes that it can't come to their assistance. It simply can't. They have nothing. They've got 30,000 paratroopers who will surrender because they can't fight. They don't have armored vehicles. They have strikers. They have, you know, 150 tanks that will be annihilated. It's stunning how stupid these people are. There is no NATO unity. There is no European unity. This is a giant trap that they've, that they've set for themselves with these economic sanctions and causing a war in Ukraine that will only solidify Russian military supremacy on the European continent. Uh, uh, we did one, and this is very important. You do have an article, Scott, that we're going to jump right back to you. Is Putin's war legal? And uh, get some thoughts on that, and then we'll go right to Ray. Well, I just, I'll be real quick. I, I make, I, it's a two-part uh, series. I published one. I got another one coming out. <clears throat> the first part is our, uh, Russia has articulated a cognizable case uh, under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, uh, which talks about self-defense and collective self-defense. And the Russian argument is a case of preemptive collective self-defense um, using the notion that NATO first um, put forward uh, and justified its attack on Serbia um, that you don't have to be a, a NATO, a UN member. You just have to be affiliated with a UN member operating as a collective security um, association of nations. And Russia is associated with Lugansk and Donetsk, and it's citing the imminent threat from Ukraine, justifying its actions. I believe it's a cognizable case. Lawyers may disagree with me, but it's far, it's a far more legitimate case than the one used by the United States to justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I also talk about uh, war crimes and what constitutes a war crime, and I'll keep this one simple. Russia is assiduously adhering to the laws of war. Russia is not committing war crimes. Uh, the Washington Post published a very interesting article a couple of days ago where the reporter almost embarrassingly had to say <clears throat> the reason why all these civilians are dying is because the Ukrainian government has decided to turn their neighborhoods into a battlefield. In short, that means the Ukrainian government is to decided to turn the Ukrainian citizens into human shields. That's the war crime. That's what you know everybody's going to be focusing on once the dust settles here. It's Ukraine committing the war crimes, and they're being facilitated in this criminal activity by the United States and NATO. Ray, and let me ask you this also, because, you know, I mean, as a person who's for peace, whenever I see a war or, you know, I, the first thing I always think is, you know, I, I, I wish this wouldn't happen. But when I look at this, of course, I feel that there's misery. It's terrible. But I can't help but look at it and say, look, any major power, any world power, if another power, world power comes to their border and starts a military buildup on their border, you're going to get that same reaction. So it's, I'm not saying I approve of it. I hate war, but I can't see how that could end any other way. Ray, your thoughts? Well, in fact, Ray, before you respond, let, let me add to Garland's point, because Garland, I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. The way that I characterize it is I am against this military intervention, but I understand why it's being done. And it's hypocritical for the United States, based upon its adherence to the Monroe Doctrine and swearing that we own all of uh, the global south, and then want to point fingers at another country when, to your point, we're building up military on their borders and we want them to say, okay, 
Ray McGovern. I would say this, that uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, people were saying it's illegal and it's unprovoked. Uh, the second word there is demonstrably a lie. It was provoked, and Scott and I can take you through that. If you give us an hour, we give you uh, <laughs> 60, 60 pieces of hard evidence on that. So it was provoked, okay? Now, whether it was legal or not, you know, I tend more and more to uh, gravitate toward uh, the notion of uh, uh, or John Mearsheimer's, uh, his idea that, you know, might makes right in this world, and uh, it's awful, um, but we all violate the United Nations, and uh, at least, at least you could say that the invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked. You can't say that about the invasion of Iraq, okay? Now, that's whataboutism, but it's hypocrisy on a grand scale for us to be accusing the Russians of doing something that was uh, a slightly less heinous, slightly less well, unprovoked. You know, that's like what we say. It was provoked. Now, uh, the media, of course, is the, is the fly in the ointment here. Um, most of our colleagues, most of our American citizens don't know any of this. And they don't know how popular Putin is in, in Russia. And they don't know how the Russians are starting to look at us Americans. They used to like us. I know that. Scott and I have been there, done that, okay? Now they've turned, turned around and said, my God, what kind of people are these folks? And Scott is quite right in pointing out that uh, uh, there are human shields being used, and that's a war crime. Uh, and, you know, what about those, what, 60,000, 100,000? We don't know. Ukrainian troops drawn up to invade Donetsk and Lugansk before uh, Putin sent the, the tanks into, into that part of uh, Ukraine. What about that? Well, was that legitimate self-defense? One could make certainly a better argument for that than the invasion of Iraq. Scott Ritter, uh, U.S. training Ukrainian troops in Poland, Biden seems to reveal... Fixing a previous gaffe in a Monday press conference, the president appeared to let slip an undisclosed detail of the U.S. effort to bolster Ukraine's fighting forces. Scott Ritter. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's no doubt that the United States has a long, <coughs> um, uh, since 2015, uh, program of active training of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, there's there's very close relationships between a number of American military units and the Ukrainian counterparts. And as we are seeking to uh, equip Ukrainians with new weapon systems, you can't take a new a weapon system Ukrainians had never before been exposed to and suddenly just throw it on the battlefield. Uh, you're going to have to set it up in Poland. The Ukrainians are going to have to send teams in who are going to get trained up on this, train the trainer. Uh, we will train them on this equipment, its tactical employment, its care, and its maintenance. <clears throat> and then we will send it into Ukraine, where these train-the-trainers will train up additional Ukrainian forces to absorb this material and, and use this material. Um, you know, and that's just the way the world the world works. Uh, it's, it's not an act of war. I'm sorry. The Russians did the same thing during the Vietnam War. We didn't get to bomb Russia because of that. China did the same thing. We didn't get to bomb China. It just is... What it is, the problem for me 
isn't the training of Ukrainian troops. The problem is some of the troops are training are these so-called nationalist troops, the Nazis. Now we just come down to my bottom line. You know, people say I'm against war. I'm, you know, on this one, I'm sorry. I'm 100% behind this war. Because if you're killing Nazis, you're doing a good thing. And Ukraine had been totally taken over by this neo-Nazi extremist Ukrainian nationalism. And you, the proof is uh, not only the existence of military units, but the fact that the Ukrainian parliament voted overwhelmingly to elevate Stepan Bandera, one of the most odious figures in modern history, to a national hero. They named the day after him. They set up monuments. They named streets. And if the parliament's doing that, that means the people are doing that. And the Ukrainian people, therefore, are part of the problem. I don't want innocent civilians killed, but the way that Ukraine is uh, configured today is a failed, broken, hate-filled state that needs to be, as Russia said, denazified. Ray McGovern, Nazis in Ukraine, your thoughts? Well, I would refer people to an excellent article by Ted Snyder in antiwar.com yesterday. He goes through the history you know, it's not just since, well, it's exactly what uh, uh, Scott defines with the training of military since 2015. But you know where the Nazis come in to, to be a convenient tool to use against Soviet Union and Russia? 1946. 1946. We helped Bandera escape. We took all kinds of these people under our wing set up, stay behind operations, set up operations using these same people because we knew they were Nazis, but they hated the Russians and that it, it could be used against the Russians. That's part and parcel of what we've been doing for, doing for, for decades now. It's not, it's not important what your background is or how Nazi-like you are. If you hate the Russians, if you can use, be used against the Russians, hey, uh, the enemy of my enemy can be my best friend. We'll give you the weapons to give the Russians a bloody nose. And Scott, what about not only training Nazis in Ukraine, but there are uh, valid reports that there are those uh, neo-Nazis in the United States that have gone to Ukraine to fight and are being trained, and the fear is they will return and bring that training home. We've got about two and a half minutes. And, and might I add, and spread throughout Europe, Scott. Look, you, you've just hit the nail on the head. Anytime that you mainstream um, hate-filled ideology, uh, militarize it, and uh, equip it with um, weapons like the Javelin missile and the Stinger missile, history shows that this ideology, this militarized ideology, will blow back onto the societies that dispatch them, and they're going to come back armed with the weapons that can be used to take out politicians, take out civilian aircraft, and commit acts of terror. This, we, we, we are literally creating a nightmare future for Europe and the United States because these hate-filled murderers are uh, going over there, they're learning how to fight, they're learning how to use these weapons, and then they're going to bring their hate back to the societies that have rejected them, and they're going to turn that hate into a weapon, and that weapon's going to kill innocent people. Ray McGovern, we've got about a minute and a half. How concerned are you? Well, I, I would suggest that these people are so full of hate that they might uh, 
if they come out on the short end of things, they might actually be tempted to, uh, I don't know, know, maybe uh, drive some aircraft into very tall buildings or (laughs) things like that. I mean, these things really, really happen. And so, you know, what needs to happen now is needs to be a ceasefire. And that's not going to happen until the Russians are finished cleaning up and denazif. Well, they're going to demilitarize, okay. They've got that cauldron going in the southeast part of Ukraine. They'll get rid of the the, uh, armed uh, Nazis. It's going to be really hard to get rid of all of them. But when the dust settles, Mm -hmm. then the U.S. has got to make a deal. And they have to realize that China's not going to play ball with the U.S. anymore. China's on Russia's side. So is India, in a way. And that's big. So to the degree we still think we're the indispensable or what is it, the uh, uh, um, domineering part of the world, we ain't anymore. Exceptional. We're not even exceptional. Well, we're exceptional in one way, and that is that we think if you go to an Ivy League school, you can run the foreign policy Mm -hmm. and you can run the economic policy of our country. And there, there you run into real problems. I don't think his economic advisors are any better than the Blinkens or the, or the Sullivans of this world, and that's saying something. Ray McGovern and Scott Ritter. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Sputnik News reports Austria and Hungary say no substitute to Russian gas as Germany's BASF warns of worst crisis since World War II. President Putin signed a decree yesterday ordering countries which have slapped sanctions on Russia to pay for natural gas in rubles starting today. The ultimatum split Europe with the EU's G7 members publicly voting or vowing not to pay while privately some including Germany, have inquired about how such the payment system would operate. Is Biden's EU G7 coalition in turmoil? Well, for insight, let's turn to our second panel. We're joined by the national organi- the, the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Good to be here. We're also joined by writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch and author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War. It's part of Jim Kavanaugh. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So officials in Austria and Hungary say there's no alternative to Russian natural gas, with Budapest stressing that more costly American-sourced LNG is not a realistic substitute. I guess Ted Cruz is now very unhappy. Replacing cheap Russian gas with expensive American gas is an absurd proposal, Hungarian Prime Minister uh, Viktor Orban told Kosuth Radio earlier today. Steve Poikinen, 
we've been saying on this show since this whole thing surfaced that that just wasn't going to fly. It's 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 economically unfeasible. Steve Poikinen. Well, you you can't <clears throat> you can't one month make a commitment to supply eighty to ninety percent of your country's oil and gas from Russia, and then weeks later turn around and say, well, uh, yeah, looks like deals off and uh, uh, everybody go home. <laughs> There's not there, that's an untenable situation. So and it's an untenable situation that Germany got itself in by by allowing uh, the United States uh, empirical whims to rule NATO. It's a position they got themselves in by by, you know, relying so heavily on one uh, nation for a natural resource that they can't produce themselves. And so now they're they're victims of both their own circumstance and their consumption. And I think that that uh, people who are are not yet victims of their consumption are about to find out what that feels like is going to be a little uncomfortable. Jim Cavanaugh, to Steve's point, and when he said Germany got themselves into the situation, it, it made me think, I wonder if this really all comes from nobody really thinking that President Putin was going to do what he did. The Putin in Geneva with Biden said, I'm giving you my uh, my demands in writing. I want your response to me back in writing. The United States totally ignored him. I believe thinking, oh, he is not going to make this move like he say he's going to make this move. <laughs> and what do we find out? You played him cheap. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, this has been going on for 15 years. Putin has been right. saying, we are going, you, I, I, I mean, I, there's a video of him in 2017 talking to Amer to Western press people saying, I keep telling you, this is dangerous. You go away with the INF Treaty, you do away with the ABM Treaty, you put missiles everywhere. We are going to respond. You, I, I'm begging you to let your reader, you're not telling people how dangerous this situation is. He was literally begging Western reporters to report what he was saying and how dangerous it was. And this is exactly the problem. There's, an, there's been a, 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 a presumption in the, by the United States since the demise of the Soviet Union, and it was a valid presumption for 15 years, that the Russians weren't going to do anything. They couldn't do anything. But that started to change. It's changed in 2015 when they, inter, when they intervened militarily. And this is the key. China's built itself up very strongly, but the Russians have started to use their military to interrupt, at least, American plans. They did that in Syria. They came in with their military. They did it in 2014 in a less direct way when they backed up the, the Donbass rebellion. But they have been saying for, for 15 years and for the last eight years, we've got to solve these problems or we're going to do something. And then they did it. And I don't think Americans, you know, American foreign policy establishment believe they could. I don't think they, I think they, I don't think they believe they could get away with it because we are so strong we'll be able to push them back. And now they're in a position where they see the results of what they're doing. And it is whatever they say now, however, all these countries, oh, we're now NATO's never been more united than it is today. We're all united. In fact, the consequences of this materially, socially, politically, and economically are going to rupture NATO and the EU. This is what These are German capitalists, the head of BASF in Germany. Do we want to destroy our entire economy 
destroy everything we've been creating for for decades. And it's you know this is what Michael Hudson has been saying. For the United States, this isn't a war against Russia. This is a war against Germany. <laughs> this is a war uh, to, to force your European countries to depend on the United States. It's not a war for Ukraine independence. It's a war to maintain Europe and in, reinforce and, uh, and in, in, intensify European dependence on the United States. You know, uh, and, and that takes me to the, to, to this, uh, Steve. The U.S. planned on, you know, we all know the plans. They're going to get, uh, 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 Russia goes to war in Ukraine. They continue to pump, you know, this old Cold War mentality. We'll just keep this war going on for as long as we can and we'll weaken Russia, blah, blah, blah. What they found was the real battle, because I think this thing's over in a month or two. I don't think it's going to be last as long as they, I don't think it's going to turn out militarily like they thought on the field of battle. However, the real war has turned into an economic war of attrition, which they had no plans for whatsoever. Brings me to Pepe Escobar's brilliant article at thesaker.is, Meet the New Resource-Based Global Reserve Currency, where the discussion, and this is the discussion now— an, a Western economic system that's based on derivatives, asset-backed securities, and magical um, economic tools dreamed up in Wall Street in London versus economies based on true commodities, wheat and nickel and palladium and gold, or, or a country that makes things like, um, like China, this is a new, truly a new uh, world order is being, is being born. Your thoughts on all of that? We'll start with you, Steve Boykinen. Well, there, there are multiple ways to look at it. And Garland, I think you and I talked about this a little bit on the phone yesterday. I mean, there, for, for valid reasons, there are people in the West who, who believe karmically that the West deserves to fail, that if uh, the dollar collapses and uh, either the ruble or the yuan rises uh, as a dominant currency, if China and Russia's, quote, fair world order, end quote, uh, uh, replaces or supplants the the new world order that Joe Biden was talking about last week. That uh, may be a good thing. What what I see, what I see, is authoritarianism with different shapes and color hats. And I I, I think that um, in order to preserve Western hegemony that some of the more stalwart cold warriors uh, would do something drastic. And I think that uh, it's going to be up to the real-time economic implications of what happens as Russia says, no, you're paying us in rubles. No, you have to go through a central bank, our, our central bank. You have to go through our bank. Uh, no, our bank doesn't do any of the weird stuff your banks do. Um, this is how finance works now. Uh, I, I, I think that in the West is going to retaliate the same way any spoiled, drunk 15-year-old waving a gun around would. Jim, your thoughts on that, and in particular, this article, the discussion of, you know, this traditional neoliberal economy that's based on, as I just say, it's based on magic. It's, it's based on you buy something based on what somebody will give you for it or the increase of value as opposed to what's behind it. 
Like, you know, there used to be you buy Campbell's Soup stock because you thought Campbell's Soup was going to sell more soup and open more factories and the stock would increase. Now Campbell's Soup doesn't even have to exist. You can just buy the stocks because somebody else will buy it for a quarter more than you paid for it. As opposed to now we're seeing they thought they could crush the Russian economy, but the Russian economy has real things behind it, hard things. And that that reality, I think, is bursting forth with this um, sanctions war. Uh, Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, that's true. That that the, you know the deindustrialization of the United States, not of the West. Germany is not a deindustrialized state, but the deindustrialization of the United States certainly has been a powerful factor in undermining, uh, which should be undermining, the, uh, implicitly undermining the power of the dollar. Uh, and and at the end of the day, value is based on what real resources, as you say, are behind it. And for what real, real resources, a currency is has a value in terms of what real, real resources it can buy. And what the United States has done in the world since 1971, since the Bretton Woods Agreement, but even, even more so since 1971, when gold was uh, deplatformed uh, as a reserve, has been the dollar, has been the reserve currency. And you can, because you can buy anything with it. Everybody accepts dollars for every commodity and every resource. Now that is going to change. And everybody sees it has to change. Because when you have that system and the United States controls the dollar and they start using that control for their own political and imperialist ends, and they start saying, if you have $300 billion in our, in our central bank, we're not giving it back to you. We're not letting you use our dollars because they, they have to go through our financial system and we won't let you buy won't let Venezuela buy the drugs from Spain that the Spanish company wants to sell them because they can't use the dollars to do that. So everybody, the oligarchs, from the oligarchs on down, has to start saying, this is a system in which the United States can steal all the dollars. And it can. And they are doing it now. And they're doing it at a high level. They're doing it to, to, to central bank reserve funds. So that means everybody understands that one of the things Russia is fighting for is to change that system into a system where no country can do that to every other, can blackmail every other country. And that means dethroning the dollar as the only currency that buys everything. From now on, you're going to buy things in national currencies and you're going to figure out ways or we'll we'll invent maybe another international currency, which is based on things that everybody accepts and can't be manipulated in this way. But the dollar's position cannot cannot stand because we see what happens with that. It becomes just an instrument of American imperial, imperial policy. And even the wealthy have to say, I can't trust that anymore. And governments have to say from Saudi Arabia on down, I, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to our trillions of dollars in, in reserve funds in the, in the, in the federal, federal Reserve Bank if the United States decides finally, in some sense, that you know, they don't like us because we're chopping everybody's heads off and we don't like women, so they're going to steal all our money. So you cannot any longer, this is you know, what Michael Hudson's saying, this is doing the best job in the world for defeating American imperialism because it's demonstrating even to the wealthy and the, and the oligarchs of the world that you cannot trust the United States with your money, which is really their money, and they'll take it if they want. So you've got to get out of the dollar as, a, as the international reserve fund. It's going to happen one way or another. It's unclear how it's going to play out, but that's the dynamic now that's been set in motion by the United States. Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard, is hailed as you know one of the, I guess, polemics for uh, U.S. foreign policy. And what I the way that I see this starting to play itself out, to, to Jim's point, looking forward is uh, President Putin is the grand chess master. 
because you know the 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 United States has tried to vilify Vladimir Putin. They're trying to vilify President Xi. They tried to vilify Maduro, and this takes me to uh, my favorite film, The Godfather. When uh, Michael Corleone says to Tom Hayden as they're talking about trying to kill Captain McCluskey and Salazzo, uh, it's not personal, Sonny. It's business. And so this whole thing is and, – and, and, and now Putin's making people offers they can't refuse. You know, they're, they're not finding horses' heads in their beds, but they're, they're turning on their thermoses, their thermostats, and there's no heat coming out. So, Steve, I, I, I really see this, this – this is chess at the highest level, and right now Joe Biden is failing at checkers. Oh, well, 100 percent. I mean, you you can't. First of all, we've got to we've got to stop acting like Joe Biden's making a decision on any of this. It's, you know, the, oh, no. The, yeah, you're right about that. Not. But his uh, he's his the face of the game, of, though. His team of little little neoliberal ghouls. I, I don't think I mean, half of those guys are, are still in their 30s. You know, they're like James Clapper acolytes and stuff like that. They only know what they've been told. They don't have any real world experience and they've never played uh, a game that has high stakes that they have an actual personal stake in. So I mean, they're outclassed on every level, but it seems like what, uh, what Putin is doing at least to parts of Western Europe is reading from Henry Kissinger's playbook. In terms of, well, if you really want to control a country, then you control how they get to eat and you control how they get to stay warm or wash or, you know, like that's that's where they're that ultimately what the the resource allocation game is about. And if all of a sudden we wake up and in terms of real resources, like we've been talking, it's, you know. Russia and China and the global South has the alliances belt road style with Russia and China that have the real resources than uh, nations that have been seen as, uh, let's say, hostile <laughs> towards them uh, are, are going to be dealt with accordingly in trade. If you're holding all of the cards, it doesn't matter what the other person on the other side of the table is yelling at you. You still have all the cards. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts. In another example of this, the British foreign minister, Liz Truss, going to meet with uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov, and she doesn't understand the uh, geography of, of Russia. I mean, and, and what made me think about that was Steve talking about these folks being in their 30s. I don't know how old Lavrov, I guess he's in his 70s. Yeah. I mean, this guy's, been in, this guy's been in the game a long time, and they're going to send this puppy in there. She's going to, you know, as I say, try to bark like a dog and pee like a puppy. Um, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. When it's not funny, it's not funny because it's, it, it's, it's frightening to watch. I mean— as you say, Biden is obviously empty. He's an empty vessel. He doesn't know what he's doing half the time. He says his gaffes, you know, we're going to send the American troops to Ukraine and we're going to, you know, all of this stuff. And Liz Truss, what did she think was part of Russia or didn't know was part of Russia? Uh, you know, I mean, these people are, to say the, the best of them, neophytes. And you've got people like Putin 
and Lavrov, who understand history. Vladimir Putin's brother died in the siege of Leningrad, okay? He is not going to allow Russia to be surrounded by fascist and, and by NATO fascist or non-fascist to be military bases all around Russia and be, have them be uh, susceptible to a first strike. He's not going to allow that to happen. That's not just him. That's every family in, in, in Russia who knows about this. Lavrov, these people are, you know, as you say, Henry Kissinger was a you know, smart diplomat. These guys in the American regime, who are they? I mean, they're clowns. And they are now the people in whom we have the, the fate of the world now rests. Who is making the decisions in the, in the U.S.? We don't know. Anthony Blinken? I mean, who is it? You know, is it Victoria Nuland behind the scenes? Her husband, Kagan? You know, I mean, but we see Putin has for 15 years and the last year, and right now is saying, this is what I'm going to do. And this is the problem. And we have, and everyone, what does Putin think? Who's make? are they out to get, you know, Listen to the man. <laughs> there you go. Seriously. But you, and you'll find out what's going on. But if you listen to the American leadership, you won't understand a damn thing because they're blathering fools. Speaking of American leadership and blathering fools, the Clinton campaign, <laughs> <laughs> the 2016 Clinton campaign in the DNC was fined by FEC for lying about steel dossier payments. Steve, apparently they were paying Perkins Coy, a, uh, a Democratic-connected uh, uh, um, uh, law firm, to do opposition research. And they claimed that they were just, you know, doing it for some, uh, some basic, uh, uh, you know, legal advice, et cetera. It seems like the wheels coming off the cart there. And I don't say that I have uh, confidence that um, John Durham is on the up and up, but it seems like slowly but surely eh, some rocks are being uncovered. Your thoughts on that? Start with you, Steve Forkinen. The beautiful thing and the equally horrifying thing is, is that you could blindfold a one-legged man and tell him to go ahead and, and hop around a little bit, and he will kick over something that's prosecutable on the Clintons. He will. Yeah. So it, it, from that point on, it becomes a game of, okay, is, is it actually going to happen? Uh, are, is there going to be any follow-through? Do, do you get, is there a resolution to the conflict? And... <clears throat> In this specific instance, I, I feel like unless it's really the Clintons' turn to be thrown under the bus, and I don't necessarily think it is, um, that they will pay their piddly little fines, led to eight grand and like a hundred grand respectively, for misfiling. Misfiling. The, we paid for legal fees when we were supposed to write opposition research. That's, that's how it's being presented in the media. Um, they're going to downplay the aspect that a four-year war in the media was waged on Donald Trump and anyone connected to him as a result of a debunked dossier. That's all going to get downplayed. The fines are going to get paid, and they're going to try and move on as quickly as possible. Recall, fellas, that they just relaunched the Clinton Global Initiative. So they're back in business. 
Jim, let me add this. And one of the things we find here is basically the Clinton campaign was trying to hide that they were funding the Steele dossier. At the same time, I always go back to this. The FBI was sending the Steele dossier to a FISA court to get uh, a warrant. And they additionally were hiding that the Clinton campaign paid for the Steele dossier. The FBI, if you look at this, is up to their ears in corruption. And I argue it was an operation that included the FBI and the Clinton campaign. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, of course, that's not part of this finding in the Federal Election Commission finding, which is, you know, as Steve says, a, a, a fine for mischaracterizing their payments. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, you know, when you look at carefully at what was going on here, the FBI knew that they were lying. They knew that I forget the guy's name now. Sussman, who, who gave, gave them the story, was lying about where he got the story from. They knew all these things while they were continuing to present the Steele dossier as something which they either didn't know something about or could be relied upon. And you know, they knew that it came from the Steele. From the, from Perkins Coy via, via the Clinton Foundation, so this was they were complicit in this. And what we what we saw starting during the campaign of 2016, and through the Obama uh, the Trump administration, was that the FBI and the National Security Agency was the National Security Apparatus was working together with the Clintonite Democrats to do everything they could to undermine Donald Trump and really to make sure. They steered him in the right direction, which was precisely arming Ukraine. <laughs> it was precisely staying in Syria. It was precisely not doing anything of the more interesting things he blathered about during the campaign that he had no capability of doing. And that's what Russiagate was about. It was about corralling Trump into the, in the direction that the national security wanted and corralling liberals, leftists, and progressives in the direction that they wanted them to go, which was preparing for what's happening now in Ukraine, actually, and Russia-phobia, et cetera. So the FBI was part of that. The national security apparatus on the whole was part of it, Clapper and uh, Brennan, et cetera. And, it, you know, it's still going on. Steve, uh, Joe Biden released his budget proposal on Monday. The White House asked Congress for $813 billion for national defense, including $773 billion for the Pentagon, Thirty billion more than a con than Congress approved for this year. Each of you have just about two minutes. You can't provide a college debt relief to to people. You can't afford to rebuild bridges, and you you can't afford childcare. But we can we can find thirty billion more for defense. And most of these issues or or, or conflicts are conflicts of our making. Steve Poikinen. Well, the the thing is, Wilmer, if you don't uh, outspend your um, inflation, then <laughs> you're you're setting yourself up for failure militarily abroad, or at least that's the argument that I believe Jim Inhofe was making in justification of the increase in military spending. We, this is absolutely insane to me. We just went through a a two-year real-time example of all of the most glaring failures of America in terms of how unprepared we are to deal with any disaster. And yet, our focus is going to be 
on expanding a crumbling empire. This goes right back to my theory about a drunk 15-year-old spoiled <laughs> rich kid waving a gun around. Jim Cavanaugh, uh, we've got just about a minute and a half. Well, you know, the, the increase in the defense spending in the United States is more than the entire Russian military budget, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have, you know, as Steve was saying, we had two years of, of uh, a health crisis, and nobody talked about Medicare for all. Nobody talked about the kind of health care that every advanced industrial country has. You know, and not only did not talk about it, they made a point during the 2020 election of demolishing that and, and, and canceling that, that issue, which all the progressive and leftist politicians said that they were going to fight, on, fight for. So we have a, an example of the disgrace of, of, of what the American priorities are and what the, what the ruling classes and the political classes' priorities are. You know, and uh, it's all kinds of phony stuff. They, they're, gonna bleed, they're bleeding about the $35 cap on a $35 cost for uh, insulin, but that's only for people who have insurance. That's a cap on the coinsurance. They haven't changed the price of the insulin at all. They're just going to change. They're still going to give all the money to the insurance to, to the pharmaceutical companies. Just if you have mm-hmm. insurance, you want to pay a $35 cap. Steve Poikin and Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, thank you both so much, as always, for your time and for your analysis. And we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Enjoy your weekends. Peace and blessings. We're out. 